itsi rea rea teitei ka hikatea, kataia. The small rea rea bird can reach the top of the kahikatea tree. E nama nei nā reo, he mihi tēnei ki a koutou katoa e huri mai ki te hotaka nei a te ahi kā. Ko Maraia Rakurakua hau. Ko Justin Maria hau, kei te whakarongo koutou ki te reo irirangi o Aotearua. Ko te ahi kā tētahi o ngā hotaka hei kawe i ngā kaupapa Māori o te motu. You're listening to Te Ahi Kā on Radio New Zealand National. Ko tērā, te wiki o te reo Māori. Another Māori language week has come and gone. Ko reo Māori, ahakoa kei hea, ahakoa ahia. Speak Māori wherever and whenever. Big ups to Te Herora o Aotearoa, the New Zealand Herald, who changed their masthead online throughout the week. Tanaki Daily News followed suit as well. That created a whirlwind on Facebook. Tauke. Now let's not forget those who just carried on as usual and the many other businesses, media outlets, organisations and schools that did their part. That now includes a smartphone app created by Māori organisation Hika Group and its developer Sophie Tauwehe Tamati. This means hello to one person for your Hika light. Now that's the male voice. Now I'll just play it, the female voice. Sophie Tamati coming up later on. Water is pretty vital for survival, and there are many, many whakatauki that attest to that, including one that acknowledges the interconnectedness between the waterways in Northland and the well-being of the people. So, how do you respond when the waterways are polluted? How does that impact on a people's wellness? Well, if you're like Steve Morunga, you question and challenge and then get on with doing something about it. It's their livelihood. Yes. You know, what's in that waterway in the moana, that's kai. Mm. You know, and that, that kai is from Tukihu. Mm. And, um, example, our harbour here at the moment is slightly polluted. From one man of Titai Tukiro to another. Ending tonight's show is a corridor from 1978 where former broadcaster Salwan Murupainga is with John Rangiho during Māori Language Week where they are assessing the state of Te Reo Māori. You know, people talk about uh, there are um, Greeks and Hungarians and Islanders in New Zealand and if we, t- if we teach Māori then we should be teaching those languages. My answer to that is simply this all those people have their own countries in which their language and their culture is kept alive there is no other country in the world where maori culture can be kept alive except new zealand that's the lineup in today's show <laughs> Recently, Sophie Nock, Ocean Mercia and Mana Elizabeth Hunkin were recognised for the mahi they do with the 2012 Tertiary Teaching Excellence Awards. Last week we heard from school principal Mana Elizabeth Hunkin and Sophie Nock will be next week. Inaene, physicist Dr Ocean Mercia who is one talented gal and was the first Māori woman to complete a doctorate in physics, a mere 
11 years ago. She's also a published fiction writer who has been a finalist in various short story competitions. Barry Barclay took a shine to a short film script of hers. So with all that brain power, how does physics correlate within te ao Māori? Ako hikurangi te maunga, ko waiapu te awa, ko ngā tipurau te iwi. He wiri a hau o te whānau a rua taupare. Ai, ki te taho tōku māma, ko honk taiapa. Rāwa ko paku waitai taiapa ōku kaumātua. Ki te taho tōku matua, he whānau nō Cornwall. Ngā Merciers, or Mercier. Mercier. Ai, ai. So, yeah, koina. Ai, kia ora. O kia ora, Ocean, no mai hara mai ki te whare o te ahika. You are the recipient, I should say, of the Sustained Excellence in Tertiary Teaching in a Kaupapa Māori context. So, I mean, what is it that you do, Ocean, if you can explain for us? Ai, well, he pū ki ngā hau o te kawā Māori. I'm a lecturer in Māori studies at Victoria University. So I teach, but because I have this background in physics and have taught in science and physics, I teach at that interface between Māori knowledge and Western science. And uh, one of the courses I just uh, had yesterday with some of my students who I met for the first time was cultural mapping. So we do a little bit of um, digital mapping in that course, look at how we can put, as Roe Hoskins would say, our faces in our places. So yeah, I'm a lecturer in Māori studies, doing uh, stuff in Māori science, Indigenous science, and um, yeah. So when it comes to when you say Māori studies, are you talking about, um, are you can kind of like combining Science and, say, te reo, or science and ngā kaupapa Māori. Yeah. Um, like, what, what would be cultural mapping? Well, cultural mapping is a way to reinvigorate those histories of our ancestors. I think a lot of our students, they'll look at a map and they won't necessarily see their own stories on that map, whether it's the place names a little bit different from what they know from mm. back home or... Um, the way the information is presented. And so uh, the cultural mapping for Māori studies is about giving the students an opportunity to critique some of those those maps that maybe don't include their, their stories, their hapu stories or their iwi stories, and give them an opportunity to make their own maps that, that do just that, that put them, themselves back in the picture. So what do you mean by maps, Ocean? Oh, I, I mean, you know, those, those physical maps um, with scales and um, right. topography. and oh, okay. uh, um, So a lot of our students use Google Earth. Uh, yeah. to do their, their mapping projects. Um, we have students also using GIS, Geographic Information Systems, uh, to map archaeological sites, that sort of thing, sites of um, traditional occupation for our, 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 dis- our ancestors. Wow. Um, yeah, so, so it's for a someone, lot of different things, yeah. So for someone like me and for some person that doesn't quite, can't, quite grasp what you mean, just to kind of get, get a snapshot or an insight into what you do, Ocean, if I say I'm from Tauranga Moana, from the Bay of Plenty, Aye. would I be looking at a Google map online of Tauranga Moana and would I be how I would relate to that geographically? Yeah, yeah. For instance, I had a student from uh, Nelson 
who had loads of kōrero about traditional kai gathering areas oh, nice. in her rohe. Yeah. And for her project, she mapped those. So she had pictures that she had taken of the different sites, and she put those on the map. So that was a re- resource then for her whānau, uh, where they could sort of digitally go into this map and uh, look at um, yeah, look at themselves represented on that map. Your background is physics and yeah. science, and you studied it at college. Um, you I got did. into physics, yeah, and yep. you were a dab hand at maths, mathematics. I was all right at maths. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you were right at maths. Yeah, <laughs> I always enjoyed maths. The two go hand in hand, don't they? Maths and physics. They do. Yeah, it's uh, maths is really the language through which physicists speak and mm. argue their point. Mm. So it's really important to to know some maths to do physics. Yeah. And so where did the, the um, I suppose, if we talk about a seed that was planted with you in terms mm-hmm. of physics back in your um, college, high school days, and how did, it, how did that seed grow and what mm. attracted you to, to physics? Yeah, I think it was the, the way that physics provided a, a concrete picture of how our world works and in all of its messy complexity, you know, physics mm. seemed to offer some quite definite solutions and some quite definite ways of understanding that world. And yes, using mathematics, but that kind of seemed quite accessible. And um, I liked, it appealed to me that physics could provide something definite in this crazy, chaotic world. That nobody could <laughs> argue with? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and part of the reason why people can't argue with it is because they can't understand what we're going on about. <laughs> But uh, right. but that was the appeal back yep. then. Since found out that you know even physics doesn't have all the answers, and science doesn't have all the answers. Mm. But uh, but that's what appealed um, about it back then. Mm. Yeah. And so when you um, finished your college years, what did you? You went to Victoria. Went University? to Victoria University. Yep. Did all my uh, did my BSc there, BSc ons and PhD all at Vic. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, went through and did physics and maths basically, but um, yeah, a little bit of um, geography and geology on the side because uh, I've always been interested in rocks and you know wow. the, the whenua. Um, yeah, so it wasn't until later on that I did Te Reo Māori through Victoria University and mm. a BA that I started later mm. after the PhD. Well, 11 years ago, 2001, hmm. um, you were the first Māori woman to graduate with a PhD in physics. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we can cast your uh, your mind back to that time, did it feel like, um, I don't know, like you had a sense of, was there a sense of, um, you know, your whānau were, were, were proud of you? Was that a big thing to think about at that time? Yeah. First Māori woman. Yeah. Well, um yeah, it was a it was a big thing. I mean, it, it came with two sensations for me. Right. I mean, it was awesome, me having a family that was so proud of the achievement, and um, uh, it struck me, yeah, this is such a cool thing. But it was bittersweet in a sense because I was like, really, can I be the first? <laughs> this is where in you know a new millennium, can I really be the first woman, Māori woman, to to get a PhD in physics? That was a little bit disappointing to me. You know, right. um, so hopefully that's just the start, though, right? And that it's just the beginning of of more Maori people yeah. going into physics and engineering, especially yeah. which are have pretty low representation of Maori still. So when you were going through that journey, Ocean, uh, back in two thousand and one, again this is eleven years ago. It might be hard to kind of think of that time, but I mean, when you're on an educational path, you kind of um, do your research about 
you know, your forebears and people who have come through before you. So as a Māori woman, did you kind of think, I wonder if anybody else has done physics before me or was it just nothing that occurred to you at that time in terms of, because you were surprised that you were the first Māori woman, so obviously yeah. no one had done it before you. No, apparently or, not. I mean, I was aware of the uh, the Tane who were out there who had done PhDs in physics like Craig Rofe and, um, and Jason Turufenua. Uh, but I, I just never occurred to me that there wasn't another woman. I thought, right. oh, there's got to be one. <laughs> there. I just haven't found her yet. Mm, true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was in my mind a little bit. But at the same time, I was just sort of focused on completing it, getting it out of the way, yeah. During that period, because um, Ocean, uh, you were you born and raised in Wellington? I was. But you have your iwi connections are to Ngāti Parau. Do you connect uh, regularly with your with your iwi back home? Do you travel home? Yeah, I probably travel home about once every couple of years, uh, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the more recent visits was for the Transit of Venus oh, uh, yeah. forum, which was amazing, yeah. last month. Whereabouts in um, Ngāti Parau are you from? Oh, like, well, I'm um, around Tikitikirua Tōria is where my mum grew up, oh, yes, yeah, yes. where her, her parents are both from. Uh, so that was in Tolaga in Uawa, uh, yeah. but I, I had an opportunity to travel a bit further north while I was there. Yeah, another time that I uh, had the occasion to to be in Uawa anyway was for a wānanga that myself and Dr. Pauline Harris, who's the second Māori woman to graduate with a PhD in physics, uh, were there for a wānanga where we were just doing some fun physics stuffs with the. The kids um, in the Tolaga area Bay cool. schools. Yeah, that was a f- couple of years ago now. Yeah. Actually, that probably brings me to our next um, part of our corridor is that your involvement with um, Kurakopapa kids mm. and taking physics essentially to them. Can you tell me more about that project? Yeah, well, that, that was the um, Te Fatakura Ahupungao, which is a name that one of our project leaders, Teripoe Higgins, gave to the Te Reo Māori Physics Project, in which we sought to. Uh, make resources for students and teachers of physics that were dynamic and and did physics in a different and interesting way and that were done by kids. So um, uh, Liz Richardson, Howard Lukafar, John Hanna, who were also part of the project, and Te Taite Kupa, were all instrumental in... working their connections with Kurakopapa, uh, giving us opportunities to actually go into the schools with a bunch of physics gadgets. Wow. <laughs> and um, just uh, switch switch the kids' minds on, eh, to, to the weird and wonderful world of physics. Yeah. Uh, for instance, we had a, a big copper slab, which was, it was thick as, maybe um, a couple of inches thick. And we had a strong magnet. Now, if you are uh, to drop this magnet... Mm-hmm. from above this copper slab, it won't fall like you've ever seen anything fall before. It'll go really slowly. Yeah, almost wow. like it wants to hover above this copper slab. <laughs> <laughs> so How to do, cool is I know, that? right? Yeah, so we had a bunch of these kinds of uh, activities uh, for the kids to engage with. But we're also interested in 
well, what's the physics behind the weird stuff that's going on here? That's right. Yeah. And so we, what, what years did this program happen, Ocean? Was this uh, recently? Or this was um, 2006 through to 2008. Oh, okay. So that was about, yeah, a good five years ago. Yeah. Those resources are still online and they're free to download and look yep. at. And yep. so nothing like that has kind of cropped up since 2008 about, you know, going to Kurakaupapa. That was sort of like a, it, sort of one-off? It was a one-off project right. that we had funding from Te Puni Kōkiri oh, to, nice. to complete. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, hopefully um, other branches of that project will go in the future. Yeah, because one thing that um, other folks, not just schools, have said about the real in uh, those physics resources is that the real is really, really um, beautiful. It's a kind of a tuturu real, mm-hmm. but we're talking about physics, you know, something really contemporary. So it just brought it home yeah. to us how. So the kupu the, themselves are old. Or they, yep, are they yep, new? some of them. Oh, some of them are new kupu, but just an old way of um, of of phrasing it. Yeah, yeah. So um, and that's thanks to Tiripo Higgins and her daughter Rawinia for most of the translations, and they've really captured. Well, they've demonstrated that there's nothing that you can't describe with with Te Reo Māori, that's even right. physics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. so it's a really exciting project. Uh, Ocean, the, the tohu that you received um, under the Ako Aotearoa um, Tertiary Teaching Excellence um, Awards, what does this tohu mean to you? Well, I think it's it kind of throws my mind back to that time when I f- heard that I was the first Māori woman to get a PhD in physics. It feels like a door opening, but not just for me, but for... There's some really amazing kayako at uh, Victoria University and just all over the place. Yeah. Um, Māori kayako who are not that good about putting themselves forward for these kinds of things. So As um, we are, you know, <laughs> e halate kumara and oh, all that yeah, sort of thing. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I hope, it, I hope that this opens a door for more people to, to put themselves out there or, or to be encouraged to put a colleague out there because, man, we have some amazing teachers and just thinking back to the awards last night and the speakers, um, now no disrespect to the Pākehā recipients, mm. but um, the, the three Māori who received awards went up there and, and gave these beautiful speeches, really sort of free-flowing in the moment. Um, and the other recipients all came up there with paper notes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like an Oscar, like, I would like to thank these people. Yeah, 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 and awesome speeches. But um, there's just something about the Māori way of connecting with people when they teach that we need to celebrate more of. With the Kaupapa Māori Awards, um, the first year, Te Kauhautu Maxwell winning, um, and then last year, Michael Walker and Sandy Morrison. That's this right, year yeah. we've got three. That's awesome. Next year, four Actually, or five too, or half yes. a dozen. Why not, you know? And the other the three that you're talking about are Sophie Nock, um, Mana Elizabeth Hunkin, and yourself, um, Dr. Ocean Mercia. Mm. I understand that you came to learn the Māori language a little bit later on aye, in your aye. life. What made you, what gave you that push to learn te reo? Well, it was, um, it was a hunger and a thirst for it, really. Uh, partly it was a promise that I'd made to... Um, Forced Foundation for Research Science and Technology, who had funded my PhD through the Tuapapa Pūtaiao Māori Fellowships, that I would learn the Māori language while I was doing my PhD. Mm. But that just ended up being really difficult, really impossible, actually. Uh, so Time-wise. Time Time-wise, yep. yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So, so it was afterwards that I was able to make good on that promise. But also, you know, when I started learning te reo, uh, I, I just realised how thirsty I'd been for it. Wow. Yeah, all these years. So, um, yeah, so it was, it was two things, really, a promise and a thirst for it. In learning te reo, was there any other parts of your life, professionally and personally, that developed as well? I think I didn't blossom, to be honest, um, before learning te reo. I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's it's just opened so many different pathways nice. um, and just given me an opportunity to use my skills in different areas. Like, I, I, I may have become a, um, a part of the te reo Māori physics project without te reo, but I just wouldn't have been able to have the same appreciation of, of what we were doing and, and what we achieved. Um, without having te reo. Yeah, oh, it's just been it's been everything, really. It's been like a, a focal point. Yes, the PhD was important, but learning te reo feels like the true pivot point of my career. Kei tuatuki tēra, Dr Ocean Mercia. Thank you so much for your time. Kia ora. Kia ora, Dr Ocean Mercia nor Ngāti Poro. And each recipient got quite a nice pūtia as part of that award. For links and photos of today's show, we've posted those up at our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash teahika. Send us an email to teahika at radioNZ.co.nz. Love hearing from you. Or look us up on Facebook. I'm Maraya Rakuraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and this is Teahika. At the end of April around Anzac Week, I spent eight days travelling throughout Te Taitukero at the same time a hikoi, started from Te Reringa at the tip of the North Island, was making its way to Parliament in Wellington protesting the planned sales of state assets. Of course, everywhere I went during that week, the people I met had opinions about the effectiveness of hikoi as means of protest that over time has perhaps lost some of its potency since the huge one that took place in 2004 against the planned Foreshore and Seabed Act. That saw Māori guardianship as guaranteed under the Treaty of Waitangi negated. Yet, as the protest hikoi made its way through Northland townships, it became clear that these people who, over cups of teas, invited me into their homes to talk about a range of subjects were very much aware of how the sale of state assets would affect them. And it all came down to one thing. Water. Steve Moringa lives with his wife Delia in the township of Rawine population hitting around the 500 mark. Examples of its strong colonial past are everywhere, in the buildings that litter the landscape, and now enjoy second, third and even fourth lives as art galleries and cafes. A 10-minute ferry ride across Rawini Harbour to Kohu Kohu makes a trip to Ahipara and Kaitaia a 60-minute round trip that otherwise would involve driving, the long way round adding an additional couple of hours. I was accompanied by Lavinia Kingi when I met Steve and Delia Murunga in their home, a locally based filmmaker who made a film featuring the husband and wife some years previous. Well, I think that Hukui, you know, they, I think they're, they're doing a good job, you know, whatever they're going to uh, achieve out of it, I hope they achieve for the best for the country, you know, uh, but I watch some of them on TV, you know, may, as long as they 
uh, do it uh, not very uh, loudly. I think, you know, I think some of them are doing it for a good reason, and some are they only there to be so they can seen. be seen. You know, and yeah, you know, just a pity. Uh, it, they started the other day, and then yesterday clashed with Anzac Day. I don't know whether, you know, I think I was hoping they'd have stopped to, you know, respect our mm. our soldiers, and then carry on like today. You know, that's my opinion on that. Mm. And what about you, Delia? Do you think the hikoi is, um, I mean, is it relevant whenever they do a hikoi from the from up from Rohinga down to Parimata? Well, sometimes their opinions, yes, but some of them don't even know what they're doing. I support the march. I support the whole hikoi. Mm. Lavinia Kingi. Yeah. Because I think this is one of the biggest things that we as a people have to step up to because it involves our land and um, and not only our land but it's going to impact on on our water you know so all those movies we see about mad max and and water's gold i mean it's you know I, I don't want us to do to, to be a dry piece of land and we've got to pay with our lives to get water and that would be particularly relevant for the hokiangai because all the waterways, what's that whakatauke about all the waterways being connected up here? Yes, it is, you know. Um, our, you know, she's dead right there about waterways. You know, it, mm. it's, uh, it's their livelihood. Yes. You know, what's in that waterway in the moana, that's kai. Mm. You know, and that, that kai is from Tukihu. Mm. And... Um, um, example, our harbour here at the moment is slightly polluted, mm. and uh, with you know, sewage, with or sewage, you know, that's all. It's, it's runoffs from so like the towns and uh, farms, mm. and nobody's taken much notice, you know, about it for years. It's all of a sudden now. Oh, you're leaving out here at low water. The bank is turning green, like algae is going on it. It's, uh, I think that happens during the summer. Winter time comes and it gets flushed out and it's back to normal. But summer times come with the heat. I think algae grows in, in heat. But you've spent a lifetime looking at this water. Mm-hmm. When, when did that actually start happening? Well, it started happening years ago, but gradually. Right. You know, see, out there, you see, we can walk out there and get pippies. You know, and, you know, when, they, when, the, when my kids were small, I just get it just way right out there about 20 metres, and then we catch, catch a feed of fish, cut a tea, and then come home. Nice. You know, and now, <laughs> now you yeah. can't do it. No, you can't. Is that because there's nothing there, or because you wouldn't eat anything from in there? Well, no, I think they're still out there, but it's, um, you know, summertime now with that algae on the bank. Mm. They don't eat the algae. They've gone further out into the deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And wintertime comes, it's not too bad, you know. It's flushed away. Mm. 
and it's sort of back to normal. Not really normal, but it's uh, a little bit better than what it is now. And isn't there a water situation in Hokianga anyway? Is in I'm just talking drinking water. Oh. Well, now uh, this uh, all the towns and uh, sort of little communities they're uh, instigating their own water supplies from their own creeks, mm. and it's funded by. Uh, from the health board and other different uh, sort of uh, funding authorities. So mm. why are they doing that? Well, you know, uh, so each community get their own water supply. The mm. before the only water supply we're getting, people used to get off the roofs. Mm. Well, as you know now. So what are you paying rates for then? Well, mainly rates are for town. Say, like even us, we're paying water water rates. Yeah, yeah. we're paying water rates for them. Well, it's, it's being, well, <laughs> where when they put the water, you know, put the water lines in, water line, I think. You know, typical uh, government authorities, <laughs> money, money, money. Yeah, exactly. Mm. You see, uh, well, our steward system on on this Mudiatawai group. And we are uh, worried about um, our um, sewage system, which is just over the hill by the hospital there, down the bottom. Um, is that the sewage system for the whole of Rawini? Just Rawini, Rawini. Uh, and what's the population here? We're about five to 600 people. And, uh, you know, um, well, I was one of the... Uh, I was on a council... The, uh, and we decided we're going to put in a sewage system for Rawini because we walked around town and all the uh, uh, septic tanks were draining straight under into the into the harbour. But uh, then wasn't too bad because the uh, everybody only had sort of water tanks. And wasn't that much water going into the septic tanks, and it, the pollution wasn't that relevant then. But now, with the water supply, you know, each household, plus toilet, baths, showers, you know, and this, a lot of water goes into the sewage system. So there, there has never really been a sewage system here? Well, for the whole sewage system came in about 1980. 86. So mm. what was it prior to that? Just uh, septic tanks. Oh, okay. Mm. And everybody had septic, yeah. and they just ran straight into the harbour. Well, mm. from the tank, the runoffs here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, we found when we got the sewage system in, it wasn't too bad then. But now, the number of houses that grown, mm. and the families that gone bigger and you know it made a lot of uh, Im- impact on our mm. sewage system yeah. mm. so you arranged to put the sewage system in and then was each household was this covered by rates um, no we levied each household uh, $2,000 household and the um, that was paid over time 
well, yeah, over, over time. But I think the ones that was able to pay in bulk, and why we done that, we actually bought. We never ever got a loan to build a two existing then, and we were sort of we ran it. Um, well, what do you call it? Mortgage free. <laughs> well, then yeah, never had a mortgage on it at all. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But even so, you've done that. There still continues to be a problem with pollution in the harbour. Well, now, you know, then we, they had a different system down at the sewage system at the moment, and they've expanded it, and they've added more sewage from communities other than Ramani. They've been tracked in. So it, you know, say if we had... uh, 20,000 litres a year for the whole around it. Now it's triple that because mm. all the other sewage has been putting in. Mm. And it doubled it, yeah. So from what areas is the sewage being poured in from? Well, all the other areas are up and only from everywhere. Mm. So that means that system, the sewage system that was created is putting additional pressure on mm. the little community here? Well, that... Um, With the other sewage from other areas getting trucked in? Yes, yes it is. Mm. Now they're trying to look for alternatives. So by they, are you talking about the Northern City Council? Well, no, our, the groups from around Lawani. You know, we believe that it's... Um, so you came up with the original solution and now you have to find another solution to a problem that's been placed upon you. Well, to rectify the, the current yeah. the problem that's been placed well, upon no, you. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a problem and, you know, every time someone brings up an idea, they say it don't work because it's not their idea. And like the final district council, they think everything they got to bring it up and suggest, not the mm. community. Mm. That ends up being a lot that must involve a lot of deep breathing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. rolling of eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> Shaking of heads. <laughs> Scratching of heads. But, and, uh, I mean, yeah. is it is it a stalling tactic? Is it trying to bamboozle the locals? I mean, what's actually the motivation for not correcting the situation? Well, I think it's the council that's uh, tried to uh, stall, stall the community and get them sort of... Uh, Confused. Well, confused, and then they try and they hope they forget all about it. Yeah, that, that that's yeah, council. No way, Maori. Yeah. We've got long <laughs> memories, yeah, eh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we sure have. Mm. We remember everything yeah. and everybody yeah. and what they did. Yeah. Yes. Your great 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 grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. 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 
So is it looking like there's going to be any solution? solution? I think it's going to be long drawn off problem. Mm. You know, it's going to carry on and on and on yeah. until they think we're going to get wire. Mm. And then people start dropping away, eh? Yeah. Right. And then there's only a few people yeah. left and yeah. then, yeah. you know, people drop yeah. away and... Yeah. Mm. What a wire. Well, it's a lot of wire, that thing, you know. You think you're getting the start to get somewhere, then they throw uh, something in the, in the works mm. and it stalls it a little bit more. So that can be anything from additional paperwork to them to studies, feasibility studies and all the, yeah. that kind of language thing, isn't it? Well, that yeah. feasibility study, that's something that cropped up all the time. Yeah. yeah you know, and that costs money. That's right. So how involved is the iwi in addressing the situation with the council? Well, at the moment, it's only a little minority group that... Uh, you know, that's uh, involved in it. Mm. Now, we've got a good little group that's, they're like uh, little terriers. <laughs> and they, uh, you know, they just keep nibbling at them all the time. I'm Mariah Rakaraku, and I was with Steve and Delia Murunga and Lavinia Kingi. To learn more about that take, head to our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash teahika. There's loads of ways to learn te reo Māori. In the classroom, reading books, attending kurareo or panekiretanga, total immersion learning, or maybe in your own community where te reo Māori is spoken freely. Then there's Māori language clubs dotted around Aotearoa or Marae Weekend Wānanga, Marae-based learning. With the continuing developments in technology, let's face it, the way we communicate is ever-changing, so of course phone applications, apps, is another form. The Hika Group is a company set up to oversee language teaching through various mediums that now includes smartphone apps. Sophie Tauwehe Tamati, a senior lecturer in linguistics at the University of Auckland, helped develop an app that's called Hika Light. How have you dedicated your life in terms of te reo Māori, the Māori language? Yeah, most of my life has been in uh, education just then. I started out like um, most others. I was a teacher and taught in the early versions, I guess, of the Māori language being introduced to the education sector, and that was taha Māori back in the day, um, and then into bilingual units, total immersion units. I became a principal of our own kura um, back at Waikaremoana, and then progressed to where I am now uh, in our Māori medium pathway at the University of Auckland Faculty of Education in the School of Te Punawananga. And our Māori medium pathway is called Te Huarahi Māori. So there's definitely a hub in terms of fostering and nurturing te reo Māori within um, the faculty. Oh, absolutely, Hi. yeah. Kia ora. and so with you, you bring all that wealth and um, uh, experience and education and knowledge of te reo. Are you a fluent speaker? No, I grew up um, 
speaking English as my first language, my stronger language. And, you know, mum, uh, she was a native speaker. And my dad, his experiences when he was at school as a little boy weren't positive. So in our family, I was raised with my brothers and sisters to speak good English, um, you know, to get ahead in life. I would consider myself um, above average okay. with all, You know, I still get, I'm going to say, I still get really ma and kind of um, shy when I meet native speakers because I hold them in such high regard. Mm, mm, kia ora. Um, so, Sophie, um, now the, the HICA, the name HICA, the HICA app, and I'm talking about the HICA application. Nobody really calls it an application. It's an app on your smartphone. I'm sure, um, you know, there are thousands upon thousands of apps out there. What is the HICA app? Well, it's really a an application that is portable. It's focused completely on the user who, you know, makes all the decisions around the learning process while using the app. So the app is available how? Yep, you can log on to Vodafone, the Vodafone New Zealand site, and the link is there to download your free app, or you can log on to our Hika Lite website and the link is there as well. So you can go into Android or, um, I think, on my one, iPlay Google? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so iPlay Google, Android, and I don't have an iPhone, so what's what's the iPhone? You can go through the iTunes, iTunes. stores. Yep. You can search H-I-K-A Hika app, and it should come up. Yeah, the real name, Justine, is Hika Lite. Oh, Hika Lite, H- L-I-T-E? Yeah. L-I-T-E, okay. yeah. It's our light version of our, and our first product out the gate. Now the so okay so I I I've, I'm just gonna set up a scenario so I've got my smartphone this is just me pretending yeah <laughs> I've got my smartphone in front of me I wish it was the iPhone but it's not anyway so I found Hika Light I've downloaded it for free what then can I click through I can click through Kyoto absolutely there are twelve categories there for um for you Justine twelve categories yeah. I'm now looking at the 12 categories just seen. I'm going to go into Hika Chat and I'm choosing, using English, I'm choosing hello to one person. I want to say fantastic to that person. And then I want to say that's good by us and is that okay with you? Now I'm tapping the device right now and it's instantly translated all those English phrases into Māori, and I'm just going to play the first one. Now, that's the male voice. Now, I'll just play it, the female voice. <laughs> now, this is saying fantastic. Or in the male voice. And this is the whole lot translated for me. You'll hear it all in one. Hello to one person. Fantastic. That's good by us. Hey, is that okay with you? It sounds like this on Hikalite. Okay, there we nice. go. Yeah. That's really, really nice. I think I actually recognise that voice. I think you do. Yeah, I think I do. Maybe he's on Takaya. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sophie, thank you so much oh, for that explanation. Yeah. Rau 
Kia ora. We've posted up a snapshot of what Hika Light app looks like. Head to our webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. This year marks the 37th Māori Language Week that has been held annually since 1975. And while seeing and hearing te reo has increased over that time, it wasn't always the case. Big ups to Nga Tamatua, Hana Te Hemara and Sid Jackson. Nga reo i rirangi Māori, iwi radio have always done their part. Before that, broadcasters like Harmi Williams, Wedemu Parker, cutting it on Radio New Zealand, though that was back in the day when it was called the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> and then there's Pawakafakata Māori, Māori Television, who, earlier this week, in a programme, Te Tepu, hosted by Chris Winitana, looked at the issue of Te Reo Māori from another point of view, instead of the old, should Te Reo Māori be compulsory angle. And hooray, is talking with a range of people, not just the same old. It was interesting stuff. And one of the things that were apparent is that two of the three panellists made a conscious decision to learn and speak Māori, prompted along by the arrival of children. The other panellist only learned the English language when he was 15 years old and was raised in a community where te reo Māori was the only language spoken to children. Now what's important about that, Justine, Mm. is that he would only be in his, what, late 20s now? Yeah, early 20s. So he's been speaking English for probably, what, 10 or so years? Round about there. And we're talking about Tupotahi Winitana. Mm. Now, it's very much like the communities of our grandparents and parents in some cases who were raised only hearing or speaking te reo Māori, as was the experience of John Dangiho, who was raised in Tuhoi community Ruatahuna in the 1920s and 1930s. Selwyn Murupainga is the interviewer. With the call for the teaching of the Māori language in schools has come the request for a greater recognition of the Māori language by radio and television. But in spite of clamouring for recognition by the media, it remains a truism for many people that the most effective way of imparting a language is from parent to child. This method continues to work for the Chinese and Indian communities resident in New Zealand, and yet within a very short time, a breakdown between Māori parents and Māori children has produced a generation of young Māori people ignorant of speaking Māori. Why has this occurred? But more importantly, why has it been permitted to continue? What what has happened is that uh, people who are now parents came through that era where they weren't allowed to speak Māori in the school grounds. But we are tending, really, to think in terms of explaining away the fact that we we ourselves have been irresponsible in, in terms of the language. And we, we have tended to lay the blame on that, on that sort of... Uh, thing and I really don't go along with it because bef- even before that happened, there were a number of Maori parents who had already decided that for their children to succeed in that particular world, they had to learn English. Now, 
we've, you know, we've, the pendulum had swung back and we've suddenly realised that there are things about the culture, you know, which is worthwhile under all sorts of circumstances. But I, I, I lay equal blame and equal culpability at the door of Maori parents. You know, you take me, I'm a, I'm a Maori parent, I speak, and that was my first language, Maori. And yet, uh, I insisted on talking Maori to my, to the first lot of children that I had. But as time wore on, I didn't have the opportunity nor the time, it seems, to talk to the younger people, so that, to the younger children. So that out of the nine children I have, uh, six of them speak Maori, and the other three, and these are the younger ones, who are not, in fact, speaking Maori, who can listen to you and know what you're talking about, but won't speak it. Now, that's not the fault to be of the Parker. That's my fault, because I should have uh, uh, talked with them in the same way that I talked to the older ones. And I, and I will say, of course, in, in order to uh, explain it away, that I was too busy trying to make a living and all that sorts of thing, and, and explain it in that way. But it's not on. That really isn't on. In fact, what is on is that we didn't really spend the time. And I say, you know, that Maori parents who speak the language didn't give the time to, uh, to their children. And it's not fair to me, it's not fair, that we're now insisting that the educational system do this. It seems that the only way that parents can ensure that their children learn to speak Māori is to send them to a school like the Ruatoki Primary School, which offers a total immersion program in the Māori language for the first four years of schooling. The other alternative is for parents to persist against great odds in an attempt to teach a child a part of its heritage in the face of a society that fails to complement the learning process. After you sp you've spoken one or two phrases to a child and, you're, and they don't respond, you then break into English because this is something that they know and you're happy and you're, we're in so much of a hurry. That's part of our total system that we can't be bothered insisting and continuing to talk Maori to them. Children, I think, will respond, you know, and they want to, and they, they may feel shy, but if you continue, they will respond in some way. But we're not, you see. We're too busy. And in the rush of the city, we are saying, oh, well, we haven't got the time to do that. We just have to make the time. And I speak of myself and other Maori parents who are Bari speaking and who are not spending the time to talk to their children. One final question. How do you think that we as a country can salvage a part of this heritage uh, when most New Zealanders seem indifferent and even sometimes hostile to learning to speak Māori? I think, uh, I think uh, people become hostile toward, toward it because uh, all of a sudden it's, it's becoming um, visible 
you can observe uh, all these sorts of things happening. You can see pressure is being put on the schools to teach Maori and all these sorts of things. I would, I would hope that the, they would, we would not suffer a, a backlash and that the backlash would be that sooner or later people will be so hostile, in fact, that they will, in fact, build a wall against things Maori. To me, there is no future in this country except that we must be able to get alongside one another. For a number of years, we have tended to be complacent and have tended to present to the world at large a view of things being uh, very good in New Zealand in terms of race relations. We are now suddenly realizing that, you know, while we were lulled into that false position for a number of years, and while we acted on this total area of complacency, we now see that things are not as good as we believe they are. That we really need to work very hard, uh, all people in New Zealand, to make affect the idea of a multicultural country. You know, people talk about multiculturalism in New Zealand as a because because it's now the in thing. It's also an in thing, for instance, for people to be saying, "Oh, we've been on a Maori Marae." But it can't be an in thing in, in that sense. What it needs to be is that we have to be able to accept that we are a bicultural country, bicultural. John Rangiho talking about Māori language. But all said and done, it does seem important for Māori parents who are speakers of Māori to teach their children to speak Māori. We end this program with a comment by Sam Karetu, a lecturer in Māori at Waikato University. The whole policy of Māori language teaching in New Zealand is something that has been discussed for a very long time. Many people oppose the teaching of Māori language on grounds of ignorance and prejudice, but that is something that the Māori has suffered for a long time and is no longer prepared to do so. I think the great numbers of Pākehā students who are now enrolled in Māori courses is ample evidence of the fact that they think that there is some value in learning the language, and certainly that is my philosophy. It seems to me that if we all profess to be New Zealanders, then there is an onus on every New Zealander to be at least aware of the language and to do his best to try to sustain it. For a long time, my people have been suffering at the hand of the Pākehā, and I think that the time has come for some cultural reparation on his part.
An archival recording from 1978, John Rangiho, the interviewer was Salwin Murupainga. And you heard in that last part, Timoti Karetsu. To hear Te Ahika again and past episodes, check out the webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And the email again, <laughs> Te Ahika at radioNZ.co.nz to get in touch with either myself or Mariah. Anaira, a Sophie Tauwehe Tamati with this week's Fakatoki. It's rea rea teitei kahikatea kataya. The small rea rea bird can reach the top of the kahikatea tree. You know, this whakatauki is from my home in Tuwe, and that little bird, the iti rea rea bird, can, even with such small size, stand on the top of a huge, tall kahikatea tree. And that's certainly what it feels like for me with Hika, having achieved um, what we have done. Kia ora. Next week, Daisy Noble of Naruihine Iwi and all that raru raru about the white bait. And I'm with Waikato University lecturer Sophie Nock. Kia kaita katoe whakanuia i te reo Māori i tēnei wiki. Ka nui te mihi to those of you who spoke te reo Māori this week. Give it a go, eh? Speak Māori outside of this week, tomorrow even. Iara, iara, peeps. Hemihi tēnei ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Atu i tērā, hemihi anō ki ngā kai whakamahia i ngā rorohiko. Hoki mai hei tērā rā tapu, mai te whānau e te ahi kā, ki a tātou katoa. Māori ora. ora.